Darkcast Network. Out of the shadows comes the best of indie podcasts. On December 25th, 1929, Charles Davis Lawson murdered his wife and six of his seven children. And in another story, almost 80 years later, Bruce Jeffrey Pardo, on Christmas Eve in 2008, while dressed as Santa, entered a property belonging to his former in-laws and killed nine people in a mass shooting, also known as the Covina Massacre. Besides both stories taking place around Christmas Day, both stories share a mystery as to what caused the motivation for the murders. My name is DJ, and this is the Mythical True Crime Podcast Christmas Special. Hello, and welcome to tonight's show. Happy holidays from myself to you and your family. This is the last episode of 2023, and I'm looking forward to the new year in the year 2024. Tonight we have two true crime cases that both revolve around Christmas Day. The first being the murder of the Lawson family. Now a little background into this story. It refers to a a female side which took place in Germantown, North Carolina on December 25th, 1929. Uh, a little more background in it. In 1911, uh, Charles Lawson married uh, Fanny Manring, whom they have had eight children. The third, William, uh, born in 1914, died of an illness in 1920, so he was only six. In 1918, following the move of his younger brothers, Marion and Elijah, to the Germantown area, Lawson followed suit with his family. The Lawsons worked at as tenant tobacco farmers, saving enough money by 1927 to buy their own farm on Brook Cove Road. In 1929, days prior to Christmas, Lawson, who was 43 at the time, took Fanny, his wife, who was 37, and their seven children, Arthur, Marie, Carrie, Maybell, James, Raymond, and Mary Lou, all of them aged from age 19, which is son Arthur, all the way to Mary Lou, who was only four months old. He took them into town to buy new clothes and to have a family portrait taken. This would have seemed unusual occurrence for a working-class rural family in that area. This was the first and only photo the family had ever taken. Because it was unusual, this led to speculations that Lawson's act was premeditated. Posthumously, this is speculated that he impregnated his eldest daughter, Marie, who was 17. Lawson, having purchased his own farm two years previous, however, uh, together with the fact that the Associated Press wire went out on the day after the murders, characterized Lawson as a, quote, well-to-do farmer, would make a pre-Christmas shopping trip appear reasonable. On the afternoon of December 25th, Lawson first shot his daughters, Carrie and Maybell, as they were setting out to their uncle and aunt's house. 
He waited for them by the tobacco barn until they were in range, and he shot them with a 12-gauge shotgun, then ensured that they were dead by bludgeoning them to death. He placed their bodies in the tobacco barn and shut the door. Afterwards, Lawson returned to the house and shot his wife Fanny, who was sitting on the porch. As soon as the gun was fired, Marie, who was inside, screamed, while the two small boys, James and Raymond, attempted to find hiding places. Lawson then shot Marie, and he found and killed both the two boys. Lastly, he killed the baby, Mary Lou. It was thought that she was bludgeoned to death. After the murders, he went to the nearby woods and several hours later shot himself. The only survivor was his eldest son, a 19-year-old Arthur again, whom he had sent out earlier to do an errand just before committing the crime. The bodies of the family members were found with their arms crossed and rocks under their heads. The gunshot signaling Lawson's own suicide was actually heard by the people who had already learned of the murders while they were on the property and were gathering there. A police officer who was with Arthur ran down to discover Lawson's body along with letters to his parents. Footprints were seen on the ground encircling the tree, which supposed that he had been pacing around the tree prior to taking his life. Now, with the first of many theories on particular motives, one of them is uh, about Charlie's potential head injury he suffered. It's reported that months before the event, Lawson sustained a, a pretty nasty head injury. Some friends and family members theorized that it altered his mental state, and it was related to that massacre. However, an autopsy and analysis of his brain at Job Hopkins Hospital found no abnormalities or anything potentially causing him uh, to lose his mental state. Now, a big motive uh, that seems to persist through time is Marie's uh, rumored pregnancy by Charlie. Now, it's not until the book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, which was published in 1990, that there was a claim of Charlie abusing his daughter, Marie, uh, and that began to surface, beginning with an anonymous source at the time who heard a rumor during a tour of Lawson Home shortly after the murders. A day before the book was to be published, the author received a phone call from Stella Lawson, a relative and that had already been interviewed for the book. Stella said that she had overheard Fanny's sister-in-laws and aunts, including Stella's mother, uh, Jet Lawson, discussing how Fanny had confined to them that she had been concerned about, quote, an incestuous relationship between Charlie and Marie. Jet died in early 1928, meaning Fanny uh, had only her suspicions of this incest at least as long before the murders in late 1929. More support of this theory was revealed later in the book The Meaning of Our Tears, which was published by the same author in 2006. A close friend of Marie Lawson's, Ella May, came forward and disclosed that a few weeks before Christmas in 1929, Marie confined in her that she was pregnant by her own father and that both he and Fanny knew about it. Many thought that this would also lead to him massacring his family because he didn't want a secret like that to get out. Another close friend and neighbor to the Lawson family, a man named Hill Hampton, 
stated that he knew a series uh, that there was a serious problem going on with the family, but he declined to elaborate any further. Sounds like he knew more than let on. Now, shortly after the murders, uh, Charlie's brother, Marion Lawson, opened the home uh, on Brook Cove Road as a tourist attraction. Because nothing says tourism like incestuous families' murders. A cake that Marie had baked on Christmas Day was displayed on the tour of the home. Because visitors began to pick at the raisins on the cake and take them as souvenirs, it was placed in a covered glass, uh, a glass cake server many years from there. The event inspired a number of songs and other tributes, including the murder ballad, The Murder of the Lawson Family, which was originally recorded by the Carolina Buddies for Columbia Records in 1930, and it was later covered by the Stanley Brothers in March 1956. The Lawson's family was laid to rest on a private family graveyard. Uh, the main tombstone features a symbol of a square and compass, suggesting that Charlie may have been a Freemason. Arthur Lawson was killed in a 1945 motor accident at the age of 35, and he himself left behind a wife and four children. If you'd like to hear more about this, there's actually a Netflix series, 28 Days Haunted, which shows the place where the victims were embalmed and describes what happens there. What do you think his motive was? Do you think the incestuous relationship led to the family's entire murder? Do you think Charlie's head injury contributed to that, or do you think it's a factor of all of that? Being it took place almost 100 years ago, it's really hard to suggest any uh, outstanding information brought on by these uh, quote-unquote witnesses. A lot of it sounds as if it's hearsay, but families have their own deep, dark secrets. It seems as if the rumored pregnancy was mostly put on by the in-laws to the uh, perpetrator. Again, tell me your thoughts. You can reach me on almost every social media platform from Twitter, formerly Twitter, it's X now, I gotta get used to that. Facebook, Instagram. You can also find my video uh, podcast on YouTube. And if you like what you're hearing, or you like any of my previous episodes, consider subscribing. Patreon or Buzzsprout. It helps me monetarily so I can continue to make these episodes. All right, let's go to our second story. And this second story is no less uh, saddened by the loss of many people that took place around Christmas. Uh, this is known as the Covina Massacre. It's a more recent. took place uh, on Christmas Eve in 2008 by a disgruntled ex-husband in Los Angeles County. Uh, the man's name was Bruce Jeffrey Pardo. He was 45. Uh, one of the more striking things about this case is he was wearing a Santa suit when he entered the property belonging to his former in-laws and killed nine people by shooting them to death, and even by arson from a fire that he starts... Now, more into that. At approximately 11.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve, Bruce Pardo, dressed in a Santa Claus outfit, arrived at his former in-law's house in a rental car that he'd got earlier in the day. He had with him multiple 9mm handguns and a gift, uh, a large gift-wrapped package, which turns out was containing a large rolling air compressor converted to spray racing fuel. When he knocked on the door, 
and his eight-year-old niece answered, Pardo pulled out the handguns and immediately shot, wounding her. He then fired indiscriminately at fleeting partygoers. After opening fire with the handguns, Pardo unwrapped the package containing the compressor and then sprayed fuel all around the interior of the home, both up and downstairs. Police believe that the fire was intended to be ignited with a flare, but when the fuel contacted the open flame in the house, there was an explosion. Between the gunfire and the flames, a total of nine family members were killed and three were injured. One of the survivors made it to the neighbor's house where she called police and identified Pardo as the likely suspect. Pardo, though, had apparently planned to a detailed escape. He had already rented multiple rental cars and parked one near a house of his ex-wife's divorce attorney, full of supplies and maps of the Southwest and Mexico. Police speculated that the attorney might have been also a target. Pardo had also made plans to visit a friend in Iowa and had purchased a Christmas morning plane ticket from Los Angeles County to Molin, Illinois. He was also said to be carrying cash uh, strapped or taped to his body. However, the explosion and the fire left Pardo with third-degree burns on his upper torso, arms, and legs. After setting the home on fire, Pardo changed out the Santa suit and drove to his brother's home in Silmar, where he was later found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Howard, his brother, was not present in the home at the time of Pardo's death. Pardo's rental car, parked one block from his brother's house, contained remnants of his Santa suit, a booby-trapped so that the moving the suit would trigger another fire and set off 200 rounds of ammunition sitting in the car. At Pardo's house in Monterose, police discovered five empty boxes of semi-automatic handguns, two shotguns, and a container for high-octane fuel, uh, uh, fuel tank gasoline. They also found what was described as a, quote, virtual bomb-making factory in his home carried out into his garage. Now, police did speculate that some of the motivation behind this was the divorce that he had previously. Pardo lived in San Fernando Valley, and he was a graduate of the John H. Francis Polytech High School in Sun Valley, California, and California State University, Northridge. He had worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Canada, Flint Ridge. In 2004, he met his wife, Sylvia Pardo. Uh, Ortega was her original name. Police speculate that the motive for Pardo's attack was related to marital problems. After the couple wed in 2006 January, their marriage from that point quickly fell apart within the first year. Main reasons was because Pardo refused to open a joint bank account with his wife, Sylvia. He had also expected his wife to use her own finances to take care of her own three children. There's some speculation that the divorce may have also been caused by Pardo concealing a child from a previous relationship for which Pardo did not pay child support or spousal support of any kind. It was later revealed in June 2008 a divorce court ordered Pardo to pay 
$1,785 per month in spousal support. Now, during those divorce proceedings, Pardo confided to his friend that his wife was, quote, taking him to the cleaners. In July, Pardo, who had no criminal record or history of violence of any kind in any registered system, was fired from his job as an electrical engineer at the ITT Corporation Electronic System Radar System Center for billing false hours. The divorce court suspended the support payments due to financial hardship. However, as part of the divorce settlement, Pardo was required to pay his wife $10,000 and she was permitted to keep her wedding ring and family dog. Pardo complained that the court, uh, to the court that Sylvia was living with her parents, not paying rent, and had spent lavishly on a luxury car, gambled and went trips to Vegas, meals at expensive restaurants, massages, and golf lessons. Sounds like she was moving on with her life. Pardo and Sylvia finalized their divorce a week prior to the attack. Now, this depiction is actually represented in two different ways. In music, uh, Polystyrene, the lead singer of X-Ray Specs, recorded a song in 2010 called Black Christmas, which contains references to this massacre. And later in 2012, the film Silent Night, which is partially based on the massacre itself. However, in the film, a character tells the story of a man who donned a Santa suit and used a homemade flamethrower to attack a Christmas party being attended by his ex-wife, severely embellishing this. So there you have it. Two true crime stories that took place around Christmas. However, that's not the end of our episode. If you stuck around this long, I'm going to present you with a scary ghost story, this time for Christmas, as my present to you. For those patient enough for a little bit more paranormal, uh, and since I haven't done any Beyond the Myth episodes recently, I went and I scoured online for some short, scary Christmas stories, and I happened to find one by Killer Orange Cat on Reddit. This story is titled, Shopping at Home. I really wanted a PlayStation 4 when it was originally released. I tried everything to get one as quickly as possible. The local Best Buy was having a Black Friday sale, and I stood in line, waiting to get one. I was nowhere near being lucky enough to actually get one in this method. I then tried getting one online. As much as I wanted one, the people on eBay and Amazon were reselling them and were asking way too much money. I just plainly couldn't afford it. After several days of trying my best to find a way to get one, I had come to the conclusion that it wasn't really going to happen. It wasn't in the cards. It was then that I thought I came across a bit of luck. Going through Craigslist, I found someone selling their PlayStation 4 and at no more than the original buying price for the system. I, of course, was very skeptical. I couldn't understand why somebody would do something like that. Also, I figured it as in demand as the system was that this person had to be claimed uh, right away or else I would miss out. I immediately emailed the seller and let them know that I was very interested and hoped that they still had it. I was surprised to get an immediate response, as they did still have the PlayStation 4, and was willing to sell it to me. They asked for my address so that I could bring it, they could bring it over. I was sort of hesitant. 
and I asked if it would be better if we just met in public. I wasn't too keen on the idea of someone coming over to my house. He let me know that he was going to be very busy all day, and he couldn't keep an appointment in public. It would be much better if he came over to my house. I was still not really ecstatic about the idea, but I really wanted that PlayStation 4. I agreed, and I gave the guy my address. I figured it was safer than me going all over the place, especially to his place. This whole exchange took place around 9 a.m., I was so happy and really eager to get my PlayStation 4, my eagerness only grew as I began waiting for the guy to show up. Hell, I not only began waiting for him, I waited for him for over an hour. And then two hours. For a very long time, hours passed, and I began to think that he wasn't going to come at all. Around 2 p.m., I had gotten really impatient. I tried emailing the guy back, asking where he was, Previously, I had gotten very quick responses from him, but this time I didn't get any. Around 6 p.m., I lost hope. I figured that most likely he got a better offer from someone else and just didn't want to tell me. I was disappointed, more than I could possibly even tell you. I couldn't even tell you how deflated I was. It's one thing to not have gotten the item at the store. I would have come to terms with that, but this was so close to having it in my hands... I, did, I just didn't get the PS4, and that was the scariest thing to ever happen to me. Just kidding. <laughs> For the rest of the night, I kept looking on the Craigslist uh, to find any more PlayStation 4 items that were for sale within my price range. I wasn't able to find anything. Before I knew it, I had wasted my entire day and the entire evening with this search. It was past midnight, and I just had nothing to show for it for the entire day. I got ready for bed as I usually do. That's when I heard something. At first, I dismissed it, thinking it was just my imagination. Then I heard it again. Someone was knocking at my door. I walked up to the door, and I looked through the window. There was a guy standing there, and I asked who he was. He identified himself as the man who was bringing me the PlayStation 4. He had apologized for being so late, and he told me that he had gotten caught up that day. He asked if I had the money. I opened the door, but kept the screen door closed. I told him that I did have the money, but I didn't see that he had anything with him. I asked him if he even brought the PlayStation 4 with him. He told me it was out in his van. He said that he can give me the money and come out to the van with him, and he would get it for me. I let him know I wasn't really comfortable about any of the exchange, walking out to his van, handing him the money over. He told me that was all right. I looked over his shoulder, and I saw someone else was in the van waiting. And he had been keeping his hands in a hooded sweatshirt this whole time while talking to me. There was something more than just in his hand, I believe. I told him, look, I have to go get my wallet, and I'll come back. He protested as I closed the door in his face, and I locked it quickly. I was too uncomfortable with this, and went over to my phone to call the cops. As I did, I heard a loud hit on my door. Then, after a few moments, I watched the van drive away, really, really fast. I went out to check and see if he damaged anything. I nearly fainted for what I saw. A knife was embedded in the door itself. 
I was right. He had something in his sweatshirt. And that feeling I had, to where I shouldn't go out with him to the van, was right. The end. Thank you very much for listening tonight and being part of the Mythical True Crime community. Hosted by me, DJ. Subscribe to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get your weekly updates. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Subscribing will directly support the show and the work that I'm doing. If you'd like to be a new supporter, consider clicking the link in the description box below. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me continue to make great content for listeners everywhere. No commitment, cancel any time. This has been the Mythical True Crime Podcast. My name is DJ. Good night.